Uh, okay, uh, Shum Mispar 188. Biblical roots of Midrashic stories towards the med- understanding of Midrashic metho- methodology. Mipi Rav Moshe Shulman. Good morning to everybody. If you note the source pages that you have in front of you, they are uh, quite extensive, a bit longer than, than usual. And that's primarily because today's Shir. A little bit different than a typical shir in a parak of Tanakh. What I want to try to do is more of a methodology perspective than a particular topic or particular chapter. And that's to analyze, in a broad sense, the role and the intersection between Midrashe Gada and Pshat of Tanakh. And that's why it's called, we're entitled, The Biblical Roots of Midrashic Quote Stories. And I'll explain the quotes in a moment. By way of introduction, if you look at the at source one, I've given you a short bibliography or list of uh, additional resources to look at if you are interested in the topic of Midrash altogether, uh, various opinions in the Rishonim and the Nachronim, uh, that deal with the question of the methodology of Midrash. And for our purposes, I want to make one clarification. We lump together Midrash as a kind of a catch-all phrase for pretty much anything stated by the rabbis, by Chachamim, by Chazal, uh, with regards to Tarash Bechtav. For our purposes and in our discussion today, I want to distinguish between Midrashe Halacha and Midrashe Agada. There is a discussion, there is a distinction to made. It's a fundamental distinction, it's an important one. Midrashe Halacha are a specific set of books that deal with the analysis of the text of the Torah with regards to halachic discussion, conclusions. It's a foundation of the Mishnah, it's a foundation of the Torah Shabbat of Halacha. There's essentially one book of Midrash Halacha for each of the four of the latter five, latter four of the five books of the Torah. There's no Midrash Halacha on Breshit for the obvious reason that Halacha starts at Yitziat Mitzrayim. And so you have a Midrash Halacha, Mechilta, and Shmot, on Bayikra, Terat Kohanim, on Bamidbar, and Dvarim, Sifrei, and Sifra. We are not discussing, discussing today the halachic drashot of Midrash Halacha. That's its own methodology. My focus today is on the sort of the more homiletic Midrash Gada, the stories that we're familiar with, the Midrashim that we talk about, very that quoted often by some of the commentaries on the Torah, like Rashi, and that some of them sound a little bit, sometimes a little bit far from the pshat of the text, and we often get the question of, well, is that drash or is that pshat? And so what I want to try to do today is look at that uh, issue, or look at that question from, from a methodological point of view, and introduce you all to a particular approach to at least a large genre or large section of Midrash and its intersection with pshat of Tanakh. And the basic thesis of my shir today, which I'll tell you at the outset, so you have the punchline right at the beginning, is that Midrashay Agada, Midrashay Chazal, do not necessarily need to be taken literally, but they always need to be taken seriously. And if that's the takeaway, if that's our, if that, if that's what we can away with today, then Dayenu, then that is our contribution to uh, to the Yemeiyun. I want to start with a couple of sources that address this question: it's How literally do we need to take midrash or understand midrash Gada? Two very famous quotes: one from the Rambam, one from the Shulte Giborim, sources two and three. The Rambam, in a number of places, addresses the question of how to understand Midrashe Agada, and he writes, and this is a, a kind of a summary or, or tamsit of one part of it, The Arabish meaning of four species, Lulav and Esrog, Chazal give all kinds of Midrashic, midrashic interpretations to what they mean. 
על דברכם ידוע אצל מי שמבין דבריהם, והוא שהם אצלם כאין המליצות הפיוטיות. רמב״ם writes that מדרשים like this are designed to be poetic, they're designed to be homiletic, they're designed to teach us lessons and ideas and ideals. לא שכך הוא עניין אותו הכתוב, not necessarily to say that that is the intent of the particular text. And he goes on to say that there are basically three, two or three approaches to Midrash, those who understand Midrash. נחלקו בני אדם בדרשות, שני חלקים, חלק נדמלו שהם אמרום על דרך ביור עניין אותו הפסוק. There are those who take Midrashim quite literally, and they say that no, that's the intent of the text. וחלק זלזל בהן ועשן ללעג, כי הדבר פשוט וברור שלא זהו עניין הכתוב. And there are others who make fun of them and they say that's ridiculous and Chazal didn't know what they were talking about because of course that's not what the text means. Both these extremes were wrong because Midrashi Akada are in fact lessons, homiletics, in, insights and poetry and not necessarily Parshanut. Similarly, Shilta Giborim makes a similar suggestion that there are various types of Midrashi Agada. In a meeting in the middle, Yesh Mehem Shem Derech Guzma, sometimes Chazal spoke in exaggerated terms in order to explain something. Uh, as Chazal said, Divru Chachamim B'Lashan Havai, V'yesh Midrashim Shehen Al-Derech Ma'asen Nisim Shemerah Kadosh Baruch Hu Kochol, sometimes Chazal wanted to explain the miracles and the power of God through Midrashic stories. And there are those, V'yesh Mina Midrashim, Shekavanat Chachamim Bahem Lidrosh HaMikra B'Chol Inyan Shecholin Lidrosh, Chazal wanted to darshan or to explain or to express some lesson in any way that they could. And nonetheless, En Pshuto Shahu Ha'ikar. The primary intent is the text itself and the lessons that the text wants to convey. What I would like to suggest to you is an insight that I learned from Rav Medan many years ago. And he, it's actually written up in one of his articles, and I'm going to uh, read you a, an excerpt from it. And what I've been doing over the years since I heard this idea is collecting examples. And so my, the shear today is essentially to demonstrate through a number of examples throughout Tanakh the, 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 the thesis that Rav Medan puts forward in the following passage, which is source number four. Chazal enam misaprei sipurim. Chazal were not in the business of telling folktale and folklore. Ubarur shamevinet ivrei chazal kipshutam arehu min haksilim. If you take these midrashic stories quite literally, then, as the Rambam wrote as well, uh, one can be uh, that can be quite foolish. Chazal ba'agodotehem. Nor were Chazal, with regards to these Midrashic stories and Agadot, in the business of conveying an ancient tradition that's not in the text. The most classic example, and we're going to start with this example momentarily, is probably the most famous Midrashic story that is not in the text, and yet it is considered the foundation of every educational system from the time our children are old enough to speak. And that, of course, is, and you're all nodding your head, you all know what I'm talking about, Avram and the Kivshanaish. Okay, so we all, we all know where we're starting from. Right, everybody knows that Avram was thrown into the Kivshanaish by the king of Nimrod, king of Oh, that piece of the story we missed, King of Shin'ar, Melech Shin'ar, uh, or King of Bava. We'll come to that in a moment. So that story we're going to begin with, because that's always the, the paradigmatic uh, example. We assume that it's not in the text of the Torah. I'm assuming everybody knows that it's not in the text of the Torah, right? Right. We assume it's not in the text of the Torah because it's a Masorat of Torah Shabal Peh and Chazal transmitted it orally from generation to generation. Claims of Medan, not so. Chazal, even in these Midrashic stories, were interpreting the text. And I'll have to explain that in a moment. And here's his thesis. 
מקורו של כל סיפור חז"ל נעוץ בדרך כלל במקרה מקראי קודם. The foundation of every midrashic story is, can be found in a different biblical event. Somewhere, he says earlier, but it's not necessarily the case, somewhere else in Tanakh. And Chazal played a very sophisticated game of copy and paste. Or, in other words, of superimposing one biblical story upon another. And the question is why and what can be learned from each one of these examples, and that's going to be the bulk of our exercise this morning. There are many places where the Torah or Tanakh as a whole doesn't explain, doesn't expound upon various pieces of the story that are missing. Famously, Abraham going to the Akedah for three days. There's no conversation. There's no indication of what he's thinking during those three days. There's no message about what's going through his mind. There's, there's a whole gap of three days walking with his son to the Akedah. What's happening during those three days? Their Midrash, that is the foundation of where Midrash would fill in the missing pieces or uh, as it's called in the language, Milui Pa'arim. And often this effort of Chazal to fill in the missing pieces is by borrowing from other stories in Tanakh. And in the next paragraph, Nirasha Chazu Ne'ezru Bechlal Hayadua Divrei Torah Aniyim B'makom Echad V'ashirim B'makom Acher. The words of the Torah are rich in one place, poor in another, meaning that there's not an equitable division of information in every biblical story. Very often, one part of Tanakh will shed light on another. Anybody who's ever read Sefer Malachim knows that in order to understand half of Sefer Malachim, you need to read Sefer Divra Hayamim and vice versa, or Nevi'im Achronim, back and forth. And there's much information in Sefer Yirmiyahu that gives us in Sefer Malachim. There's no one consistent Sefer in Tanakh in which you can say, all you need to do is read that Sefer and you understand it. It's one Michlal, 24 books of Tanakh as one unit. And we need the whole picture to understand any particular given part of it. Uh, I'm going to add one more piece to the puzzle. And that is that Chazal made an assumption. And it's that assumption which unfortunately has gone awry. Chazal knew Tanakh by heart. There's no question. Anybody who's ever read a Daf Gemara and come across a sugya in which Chazal quote a Pasuk and, and looking at the Gemara doesn't, doesn't understand the connection between the Pasuk and the Sugya till they open up a Tanakh and read the rest of the Pasuk or the context of the, cha- of the particular chapter from which this Pasuk comes and realize that Chazal was simply co- beginning the quote of the first three or four words and then assuming like we would put in dot 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 that you know the rest. Chazal knew Tanakh by heart they assumed we did too. And that's where the assumption has fallen away, and where we find ourselves struggling to the world of Chazal, if they quote a story, and the story is anchored somewhere else in Tanakh, they assume that we would be able to put the pieces together. And so that's our exercise for this morning. I'll give you two very brief and simple examples, and then we will dive into uh, the bulk of our work. This, uh, the first example is famously the story of Pinchas. Very famously, Chazal uh, make this following statement, Pinchas hu Eliyahu. We've all heard the statement, Chazal link Pinchas with Eliyahu Anavi. And Rashi quotes in Chumash, Pinchas hu Eliyahu. Did Chazal mean to say that Eliyahu Anavi was something to the effect of, on my calculation, about 700 years old? I'm assuming not. But in that statement, what did Chazal do? Simple statement, what did Chazal do? They linked two personalities in Tanakh about which, about both of which it describes with the same phraseology. 
and that you have in source 5. Pinchas is described as being zealous for God, and Eliyahu, who famously after his showdown with Nevi'i Abal and Harakamel, goes running to the mountain and to the cleft of the rock where Moshe saw the Midot HaRachamim of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and there God says to him, Malach Eliyahu, what are you doing here? And he proclaims, I was zealous for you, God. And by virtue of the fact that both these personalities, Pinchas and Eliyahu, are described as zealots, Chazal linked them. Pinchas to Eliyahu. I don't think for a moment Chazal meant to say that Eliyahu was 700 years old. I do think Chazal meant for us to realize that the connection between them as both being zealots is far more fundamental far more fundamental and far more important than just the textual analysis. They're both zealots, they both acted zealously, but there's much more to that. Because if you know the story of Eliyahu, then you know that Chazal, that, that the Rebbeinu Shalom chides him, criticizes him for that zealotry. And in fact, when he refuses to let go of that characteristic of Kana'ut, the Rebbeinu Shalom essentially fires him and tells him to go anoint his successor. Well, if you follow Pinchas, and we're going to look at some of it later, if you follow Pinchas to the rest of the story, which is not in Chumash, but is in Sefer Shoftim, Sefer Yoshua and Sefer Shoftim, you'll find in two other instances where Pinchas acts zealously, and in both instances he acts incorrectly, ultimately getting fired in the story of Pilegish Begiva, where Chazal state explicitly that when it says that Pinchas was the Kohen at that time, means at that time and not beyond because he was fired at that moment. And the same zealotry that undid Eliyahu ultimately undoes Pinchas. And suddenly we have a whole new understanding of who and what Pinchas is. That's the game. Pinchas, who Eliyahu, to understand Pinchas and Pashat Pinchas, you can't stop there. You need to follow the story through the story of Eliyahu and go back to the rest of the story of Pinchas. And there's a much richer picture to the good and the dark side of the Kana'ut that Pinchas represents. That's essentially the thesis. That's the example um, we're going to start with. And from here, we begin our journey. First example I want to bring to the table, which is of course the one we just started with, uh, and we mentioned probably the most famous one, is namely Abraham in the furnace of Nimrod. The full text of the Medrash appears in source eight. The just to understand the source pages, uh, there's a handful of sources that are in in double line boxes. Those are the, midrash, the Midrashim, those are the primary so sources of our discussion. The rest of it are the other references in Tanakh from which these Midrashim come. I'm not going to read the Midrash in its entirety for the sake of time, but we all know more or less the basis of the story. There are essentially two, maybe three, primary parts to this message or to this story. Uh, number one, how does the Medrash begin? Medrash begins with the description of Avraham working in his father's idolatry workshop or storefront or retail outlet. And in walks somebody who wants to buy an idol and Avraham says to them, how old are you? He says, I'm 50. He says, why did you at the age of 50 want to buy an idol that was made today? Just take a look at that line itself, which is um, five lines down from the top of the Medrash. The person would say, I'm 50 or 60 years old. Woe unto this person who's 50 or 60 years old. And he wants to bow down to something which is a day old. That's one part of the Medrash, meaning a picture of Avraham reflecting on the absurdity of the world of idolatry. By the way, there's a phrase in Sefer Shoftim which is almost equally 
sort of as ironic, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I've often quoted this as quoted it as my favorite phrase in Tanakh because it really highlights the absurdity of idolatry. It's a phrase that appears in the story of Pesel Micha, where Micha and his people go go running after the people of Shevetan who stole uh, the idol and the Levi who was working with him in this temple that he that he built out of this idol that he made. And uh, Micha catches up to them and he says to them, Elohai asher asiti lekachtem. The gods that I made, you stole. If you think about the absurdity, the theological absurdity of that statement, that's exactly what Abraham claims to this person. In the meantime, he's, that's not enough. That person goes out, and then the next, so then he take, then the next person comes in with a basket of food. He takes it, and he begins the process of smashing the idols. Right, so he places the basket of food on the lap of the largest idol and he smashes all the rest of them his father comes in and he says to him what are you doing and what happened and he says well they they all started to get jealous of each other and they started to fight over the food and so one smashed the other and the largest one is the one left standing called Elinkvar and uh, that's what happened and his father looks at him and he says they can't speak they can't hear they can't think they can't kill they can't act what are you talking about and Abraham says to him in the last line of the first paragraph, Omer, let your ears hear what your mouth is saying. That's the first part of the Medrash. Before he gets thrown into the Kivshana Eish, this part of the Medrash deals with Abraham struggling with his father's idolatry and essentially reflects upon the fact that Abraham cannot begin his journey until he takes the step to break from the background, the milieu of idolatry in which he lives, and in particular represented by the idols of his father. That's the story. We'll come to the second part of the story in a moment. I I really believe that this whole medrash is actually built not from one story in Tanakh, but actually three, for sure two, and I'll demonstrate that. This part of the story of Abraham breaking his father's idols as the beginning of his journey has a clear precedent in Tanakh. It's not just a biblical uh, midrashic story. The story, of course, is the story, of course, is Gidon, correct? And if you and I give you the reference at the end of this section, which is Shoftim Perak Vav Pasuk Chavhei. Gidon appointed by God to go and save the Jewish people. I'm reading Perak Vav in Sefer Shoftim Pasuk Chafei. Vayiba Laila Hu Vayomelo Hashem Kachet Parashu Hashem Laavicha Uparashani Sheva Shanim Vaharasta Et Mizbacha Baal Asher Laavicha Veet Hashera Asher Alav Tichvot. Before you begin your journey, you must go and break the altar of Baal that belongs to your father. And there, in its place, build a mizbeach to Hashem. Pasuk of Zion, Veikach Gidon Asra Anashim Yabadav, Vayas Kasher Diber Elav Hashem. Gidon goes and he takes ten people with him to go and do what God commanded. Vayi Kasher Yare Et Beit Aviv Et Anshei Ha'ir Miasot Yomam Vayas Laila. He was a little afraid to go confront his father in the entire city by breaking the altar of Baal in the broad daylight. So he does so in the middle of the night, and um, the time of the morning comes, and the altar of Baal is broken, is destroyed, and they're all wondering what happened. If we want a precedent for a leader beginning his journey with a public break from the world of idolatry of the milieu represented by his father, which is what you have in the Medrash about Abraham, the story is there in the story of Gidda. So why would Chazal take the story of Gidon and borrow it, superimpose it, into the world of Abraham? I'm going to come back to that question. It's a very important one. Because in all of these examples, it's not enough to find the biblical roots of the story. Far more important is to try to understand what Chazal were doing 
by moving stories, by copying stories, by borrowing and reframing them in the context of other stories in Tanakh, I believe they were comparing two individuals, comparing two moments, comparing two experiences, sometimes textual comparisons, sometimes thematic comparisons, as we saw by Pinchas. And so the question becomes, what's the relationship between Abraham and Gidon? But in the meantime, let's let's go on to the next part of the story. Naspe Yomastri Nimrod, back to the Medrash, source two. Uh, sorry, source eight, paragraph two. So his father takes him and hands him over to Nimrod. Now we don't necessarily in the Medrash know who Nimrod is, but we all know who Nimrod is. Uh, Nimrod, if you look at source 11, is the uh, text from Breshi Perak Yud, V'kush Yoladet Nimrod, Hu Hechel Liot Gibor Ba'aretz. Nimrod was a Gibor. Hu Hayah Gibor Tzayid Lifnei Hashem, Gibor Tzayid, hunter, is a a job or profession that we are familiar with from another famous biblical personality. Al ken yeama kinimrod gibor tzayid lifnei Hashem. Vatehi reshit mamlachto bavel ve'erech ve'akad ve'chalne ve'eretz shin'ar. Nimrod melech shin'ar. Nimrod melech bavel. Coming back to the story, Nimrod, So then they have a whole conversation on the theology of who to serve and who to pray to. And in the end, uh, Nimrod says to him, I serve fire. I'm going to punish you by fire and let your God save you from the fire. In the middle of the next, the, at the top of the next column, Remember where Abraham comes from? Ur Kazdim, right? the fire of Kazdim. I'm going to throw you into the fire and let your God come and save you. The rest of this medrash I'm not going to engage in because it's a little more, um, takes us off into a different direction, but more or less that's the story. So what do we have? We have Nimrod, king of Shin'ar, also known as Bavel, who has a giant furnace, who throws Abraham into this furnace for not bowing down to his idols or to his, uh, or to his gods. And in the end, the nace occurs and Abraham is saved. That's the story. We teach it to our kids. Uh, I remember when I, uh, many years ago, when my oldest daughter was uh, here in Gan, in Israel, and uh, I can't remember how old she was, but she was a very young girl. Uh, she came home from Gan first, Pashat Lech Lecha, and uh, she said, oh, she, with great excitement, she told over at the Shabbos table in Hebrew uh, the story of Avam and the Kivshan Eish. And she gets to the end of the story and says, Avram nishlach lakivshana esh, v'humet. And he died there. And we looked at it and we scratched our heads and he said, ah, that's not the end of the story. He didn't die. A nice occurred and he was saved. Because lo, ye'eliyem rashi umet. Never argue with a ganenet. Never argue with a ganenet. Her ganenet told her that he died. She must have, he must have died. There was no reasoning with it. So the next morning we went to Gan and explained to, to the Ganenet what had happened. And very simply, Ganenet took her aside and explained to her that she must have missed the end of the story because, of course, he didn't die. And the next night, uh, the Stiffy came home and we asked her, what did Yaeli say? And she, Lomet, Lomet, Lomet. <laughs> she was most disappointed that she got it wrong. But clearly, Abram did not die in the Kivshana Eish. Clearly, he uh, a miracle occurred. Now, that story, most famous midrash, midrashic story of all, familiar to people? Yeah. Right. From where? From where? <laughs> from the Ganen. No, for, I don't mean this is the midrash familiar. I mean, is the story in Tanakh familiar to us? We are very familiar with the story of the, of the midrash. Is the story in Tanakh familiar? Do we know anywhere in Tanakh where? 
a individual or individuals were thrown into a fiery furnace in Babel by the king of Babel for not bowing down to the great idol of Babel? And the answer is, of course, yes. Right? Because we all know the story from the one book of Tanakh we never read. And that's because it's in Aramaic. And right, half of it's in Aramaic. So uh, for the sake of all of our, for the sake of time and our sanity, I have given you a Hebrew translation of that passage, which is in source 9. Onen Nebuchadnezzar ve'omerlen, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel, is talking to Chananiah, Mishael, Ve'azariah, the three disciples of, of uh, Daniel. Is it true that you do not want to bow down to my great gold statue and idol? And if you do not bow down to them, in the end of the next pasuk, you will be thrown into the great fiery furnace. And let your God come and save you. Sound familiar? Not only is the story familiar, but the language is, is familiar from the Medrash. So which they, to which they said, we don't need to think about it. If there is a God, he will save us. And if, they, and if he doesn't save us, then that's okay too. We accept it. We accept the decree. We will not bow down to your God or serve your idols. So these three people, the next paragraph, they were tied and thrown into the furnace. Did we not throw three people into the furnace? Yes, of course. Well, why are there four people walking in the furnace and the fourth looks like a malach? doesn't take much to figure out what's going on. The end of the story is that Nebuchadnezzar sends a letter acknowledging the God of Daniel Mishav Azariah, and it's a great moment of Kiddush Hashem. So it's clear, I think, to all of us that if we're looking for the story, the roots of the story of Avram and the Kivshan Eish, the roots are in the story of Hananiah, Mishael, Vazariah, thrown into the furnace of Nebuchadnezzar, Melech, Bavel. The story's in Tanakh. It's just not about Avram. It's about Daniel, who gets thrown into the lion's den, or Hananiah, Mishael, Vazariah, who gets thrown into the fiery furnace. So the only real question that's left to ask is why? Why did Chazal take the story of Daniel or the story of Hanani Mishal Vazaria and put it into the world of Abraham? And there we could spend an entire sheer plus two or three analyzing the connections, the stories between these two great moments in history, between Abraham and his world, between Daniel and his world. We could take it on the simple level that just as Daniel living in a world of Babylonian idolatry wanted to convey the message of emuna and bitachon and devotion to God. So too, Abraham must have lived in that kind of world. And you know, it's like they say about Hasidic stories: even if they didn't necessarily happen, they could have. Right? So even if it didn't necessarily happen to Abraham, and let me state for the record, I don't. You know, I always I teach this to my students. Sometimes I get the question of, well, then did it really happen? And the answer is, well, it could have. I mean, it doesn't really, I don't think it did. Like, I don't think Chazal were trying to convey a story that didn't, that's not in the text. I think Chazal were trying to connect Avraham to the story of Sefer Daniel. And the connections go far deeper than just the fight and the struggle against idolatry. Think about it from this perspective. And this is just, a, sort of a, a, on one foot, kind of a, the, the, the punchline of the message. There's a whole discussion in the halachas to what Nebuchadnezzar's idol was. Whether it was really an idol in terms of idolatry, 
there's a Tosfot that says that uh, it wasn't really an idol, it was more of a monument, it was like a statue that looked like Nebuchadnezzar, and therefore a statue that looks like the king, you're allowed to bow down to the king, you may be even allowed to bow down to the representation of the king, not so clear that it was a Vodazara, it's a whole discussion in the Halacha whether or not it was a Vodazara, but in the meantime what it clearly was, was a representation or a demonstration of the arrogance of the Babylonian king, who sets himself up as the king over the entire world. Nebuchadnezzar is running the largest global empire of the time. And he's built himself what's clearly the pshat of the story because it comes from the previous parak where he sees a great tree and the tree represents himself and tree is, is, is made up of different elements and so in the next chapter he builds himself a statue made out of pure gold rather than various elements that are in the previous chapter and he asks everybody to bow down to it to acknowledge his power, his glory, his his, his authority over the world and essentially it's a struggle over the, the dom dominion of God versus the dominion of man and that's the message of all of Sefer Daniel well, that's the message of Abraham's life as well. Dominion of God versus dominion of man. Moreover, in the next chapter in Sefer Daniel, which you have a little bit of a moment in, in Source 10, you have this picture of the same Nebuchadnezzar walking on the top of his palace or his tower, if you will, he was walking on the top of the uh, um, the kingdom of Bavel, meaning the top of his uh, highest point. This is the great Bavel that I built to my glory and out of my strength. And the rest of the story is that immediately he was cut down and turned into a beast of the field to go and to go and live as a beast to, to learn humility and to learn a little bit of the role of God in the world. Come back to the story of Abraham for a moment. It's this whole story of Nebuchadnezzar, the arrogant, self-proclaimed king of the entire world at struggle, at fight with God and the dominion of God that is the milieu and the backdrop to the world of Abraham. Why is that relevant? Because the story of Abraham starts in Parshat Lech Lecha. And one of the great mysteries in, in, in Tanakh or in Chumash is where's the backstory? Where's the, the 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 background to Abraham's relationship with God? So the Medrash fills it in with the story of Nebuchadnezzar. But where is that coming from? Well, the answer is that there's another story in Chumash that sounds very familiar. Think about it. Great big tower in Bavel at the top of which stands a king of flesh and blood who proclaims himself to be this, the king of the entire world where there's no room for God. Sound familiar? Story of Migdal Bavel. Now the fascinating thing is that the story of Migdal Bavel is the story just prior to Parshat Lech Lecha. Part of our problem is that we divide the Parshiot arbitrarily. But if you read Tanakh, straight, without the division of the parashiot, you read Migdal Bavel, and then Terach takes Abraham on his journey to the land of Canaan, stops in Haran, God comes to Abraham and he says, move forward. What's the connection to the Tower of Bavel? Well, if you go through the chronology, and Chazal do this in Seder Olam, the chronology is that Abraham is 48 years old at the time of Migdal Bavel. And suddenly the story of the backdrop of Abraham is not in a vacuum. In the same way that Nebuchadnezzar's walk on the top of his tower was the symbol of his conflict with God, Abraham's story begins when he's looking out at the world and he's seeing empires rise and fall, struggling with each other, and recognizing that there must be a power above them all, and that power we call God. And this essentially is the message that the Sforno has in his interpretation of the, uh, the Migdal Bavel, source 12. Zot haita atzat sare hador, lahamlich et nimrod al kol hamin ha enoshi. The kavanabazaita shamolech aloto ha ear, 
ימלוך על כל המין האנושי ביות שם דרישת כולם. And the Medrash in source 13 uh, identifies Abraham as 48 years old at that moment. And so clearly what I think Chazal were doing was taking the background of the story of Nebuchadnezzar and the story of Bavel and sharing with us the insights into the world that Abraham was living in, including the connection to Migdal Bavel, all through a methodology of taking a story from one part of Tanakh and linking two stories in Tanakh by superimposing story A into event B. That's the Degem. That's the, the example. That's the paradigm. And now we're going to run through a bunch of additional examples uh, a little bit faster than this one, so you have a kind of a, a sense of the breadth of the thesis. I mentioned before the notion that, that Gidon is also part of this story. Gidon's breaking of his father's idol or his father's altar uh, is the backdrop of the first part of the story, Avraham breaking his father's idols. Uh, there too, we could spend some time trying to analyze what the connection is, but uh, there are quite a number of connections between Avraham and Gidon. Uh, Avraham goes to war against the four kings with 318 people. Gidon goes to war against all of Midian with 300 soldiers, uh, the purpose of that war. Uh, but in the end, I think the real message of contrast is when Avraham goes to war against the four kings, he does so with conviction, with confidence. He does so with total devotion and faith in God. Avraham is the quintessential example of somebody who never doubts, never questions, loyal to God to the end. Gidan, on the other hand, at that moment when he's called upon it to break his father's altar, one act he's told to do, and the, and the Navi says, that he was too afraid to do it by day, and so he did it by night. And the contrast, I think, works backwards. By explaining, we're giving us a picture of Abraham's strength of character, it gives us a bit of an insight into the failing and the weakness on Gidon's part, and ultimately that which leads Gidon in the end to self-implode, and Gidon in the end becomes a source of, of, idol of idolatry, and that's a different story. All right, let's move on to the next example. We'll kind of take a couple of, of uh, shorter and quicker examples as we go along. Next Medvish, source 15, the Akedah. After these things, God tested Abraham. After what? Satan. The story of the Akedah, says the Medrash, begins with a dialogue with the Satan. What's the dialogue? As it says, Actually, that's an example of where Medrash quotes half the Pasuk. I threw in the other half of the Pasuk for our benefit. The Medrash only quotes the phrase, But to understand the Medrash, we need to know the second half, where it says that Abraham made a great feast on the day that he weaned Yitzchak. Amar Satan lifnei Kadosh Baruch Hu Rebono Shalolam Zaken Zeh Chinanto Lemea Shana This old man, you gave him grace of a hundred years. At the end of a uh, hundred years, you gave him a child. And Mikol Sudash Asar Lo Ayalo Tor Echad Echad Laakriv Lefanecha And he didn't give, make a single offering to you to thank you. Amar lo Kadosh Baruch Hu said to the Satan, "Klumasa ela bishul beno. Imani omelo zevech et binchal afanai miyad zovcho." He's doing this all for his son, and his loyalty is unquestioned. Unquestioned. If I said to him, "Sacrifice your son to me," he would do it. Miyad velokim nisat Avraham bayom akachnet bincha. So here's the story. The Akedah begins with a conversation in the Medrash, conversation between God and the Satan. And God says to the Satan, this Abraham is loyal to me. The Satan says, no, he's not. God says, I'll prove it to you. We'll test him. And the test will be, take away his son. And that will be the proof of his loyalty. That conversation with the Satan is in the Medrash Rashi quotes in the beginning Parshat Vayera. Actually, in Parshat Lechlech. Sound familiar? 
it is exactly the framework of the story of Eo. And if you take a quick, can I put this on the source page? Um, no, it's actually, uh, let's take a look at Eo Perak Aleph, which is not on the source page. This is not on the source page. You have to, um, you have to use the Tanakh a little bit. Eo Perak Aleph. Ishaya Be'eretz Utz U Eo Shmo. Person who is tam, straight, feared God. Seven sons, three daughters, great wealth, great power, he was a judge, etc. There is none like my servant Eov, righteous, just, and fearing God. What does it say about Abraham after the Akedah? Yeah. He's only loyal because you gave him so much. Take it away from him and see where his loyalty leads. And that's exactly what happens. And so what Chazal did here was they saw a connection between the story of Eov and the story of Avraham. Now that connection is more than just the Satan's conversation with Eov. There's a much more fundamental connection between Eov and Avraham, which is what Chazal, I think, were pointing to. There's textual connections. Yerei the description of the, our protagonist. Even the description, the, their own description, at one point Abraham proclaims about himself when he's engaging with God in a conversation about uh, stone. Allow me, please, to continue this conversation, but I am but dust and ashes. What does Eo say of himself? In one of his tirades against God, he says, I will speak, I will ask, let me in, in, speak to me, engage with me. I reject, I re- my entire life, I reject my, my existence, I regret that I was even born, I am but dust and ashes. So the phrase appears in both contexts, but what a difference between them. Comparison between Eov and Avraham is a comparison of contrast between Avraham, who expresses Afav Efer as an expression of humility, and Eov as an expression of despair. In fact, it's despair that is the theme of Eov's whole life, in contrast to Avraham, with all the challenges of the Akedah and everything else that happened to him, never despairs. There's an opinion in the Gemara actually in the Yerushalmi that there's a whole discussion about who Eov was and when he lived. Multiple opinions. But one opinion is that Eov lived at the time of Abraham. And part of the comparison is the fact that Nuvyol Benun writes this up in the you know the 99 chapter da- daily chapter of Tanakh that uh, people are studying. Nuvyol uh, has a, a weekly or daily. Uh, piece in each chapter, and in his piece on Eov, he talks about the comparisons between Eov and Abraham, and the phrase B'nei Kedem, B'nei Kedem, appears in only two contexts in Tanakh, once by Eov and once by Abraham, that they may have lived in the same time and the same place, which may explain the language challenge of Sefer Eov. But if that's the case, and it even, it, it, it intensifies the comparison, because what you really have in the story of Eov and the story of Abraham are the two extremes. Two individuals who suffered 
great tragedy or potential tragedy. Where Avraham's experience in going to the Akedah is one of, compare for a moment, Eov's trials and tribulations and his response to them and the silence of Avraham's journey to the Akedah for three days. What emerges is the, perhaps the reason, maybe, and this is the thesis that Raviol suggests, that at that moment there were two great individuals of great righteous stature. And each of them could potentially have been the progenitor of the Jewish people, the chosen nation, if you will. And so God tested them both. Avram is tested. Eov is tested. And that's the comparison. Whereas Eov fails the test and Avram passes. And so the story of Eov is the backdrop to the choice of Avram. All because Chazal took the story, the, the structure, the story, the Mizgeret, the framework story of Eov, and connected it by highlighting for us the connect the dots to the parallels to Avra. Let's go on to another example. Source 18. Another famous Medrash. How was Moshe chosen as the leader of the Jewish people? What did Moshe do to deserve to be chosen as the leader of Israel? Moshe was an Egyptian. He ran away from Egypt. Who could it say that we could point to the three stories in which he intervenes and sees his brother's affliction, and he kills the Egyptian, and then he struggles with the two Jews that were fighting, and then he goes and, he, and his moral convictions lead him to, leads him to save the daughters of Midian. We could point to all of those stories in, te- in the text and say those are examples of the great nefesh, the great soul of Moshe. Chazal, for some reason, point to a different story. In Surah 18, Hashem Tzadik Yivchon, how does God test the righteous in their ability as shepherds? And the Medrash lists all the various leaders of Israel, David HaMelech and, other, and the Avot, who were shepherds in their lifetime. And the most famous, of course, is Moshe. Now, the text here is building on the fact that Moshe comes to the snare because... How does Perak Gimel begin? Right. Right. He son, and he was the shepherd of his father-in-law's flock, and he brought him to Har Elokim, and there he sees the snare. There was one sheep, one shepsala, that ran away from him, and so he ran after him until he came to some kind of shade. They saw under that piece of under that shade a bit of water, and the gdi started to drink. I had no idea that you ran away because you were tired. So he took the sheep, put it on his shoulders, and he brought him back, brought it back to the flock. You have the compassion over your flock. I will make you the leader of my flock. Now, there's two issues here. Number one, the reference to Moshe as a Ro'etzon is a reference, and many leaders of Israel as Ro'etzon, is a reference that comes through their story as well. When Moshe uh, wants to, de- when Moshe is ready to depart from his leadership role and he turns to God in Parshat Pinchas and he says, you need to appoint a leader, a successor, so that the flock of God should not be like a flock without a shepherd. So it's very much in the conscious mind of everybody that the role of a shepherd is parallel to the role of a leader. Nevoat Yechezkel, Nevoat Ro'im, Yirmiyahu has a nevoah about leaders, kings described as, as shepherds. So clearly that is, an, is a metaphor that makes sense in the context of, uh, of leadership. However, if we think about it from this perspective, in this Midrashic story, 
we have potential leader of the Jewish people, the potential, 1215, right? Yeah. Potential leader of the Jewish people, potential first king, if you will. Right? Moshe, there's all discussion about Bahibishu and Melech refers to Moshe as a Melech. Right? First, certainly the first leader of the Jewish people who comes to his position because he's leading his flock and one of his Let's separate Pshat and Drash for a moment. The Pshat is he's leading his flock and he ends up at Harsinai. Beginning of Parakim. Moshe Yoretzon Yitro Aviv comes to Har Elokim and there he sees the snare. In the Drash, there's one flock, one sheep that gets away from him. And so he goes running after that sheep and in the process engages with God in the Medvish. He says, because you cared enough and had the humility to take that sheep on your shoulder, you are you are appropriate to be the leader of my people. Anybody ever study Sefer Shmuel? Does that story sound familiar? Mm-hmm. First king of Israel, who comes face to face with the Navi, who says to him, you are going to be the next king of Israel. The context of that story is Shmuel Aleph, Perak Tet. Let's take just a quick, quick lens. Perak Tet. Shmuel Aleph, Perak Tet, starting in Pasuk Gimel. Vatovadna ha'atonot lekish avi Shaul. Kish, father of Shaul, had a flock. In this case, it's donkeys, not sheep, but nonetheless. And one gets lost. Vayomer Kish el Shaul bino. Kish said to Shaul his son, Kach na'itchat achad me'anearim. Also a phrase that's connected to Abraham. Vekum lech bakeshet ha'atonot. Go and seek the, the lost donkey. They go looking high and low and they can't find it. They come to Eretz Tzuf. Shaul's ready to give up. Think about that for a moment. Shaul's ready to give up. And then now I says to him, Vayomarlo, Hinena Ishe Lokimba Irazot, Vaish Nichbad, Kolashi the Ber Boyavo, Atan El Hashamulaya Gidlanu et Darkenu Asharalachnu Allah. There's a Navi here, there's an Isha Lokim, let's go ask him. Maybe he'll tell us. And there's a little conversation about what they're going to pay the Navi, which is really a very cute story because he has a quarter and he said, We'll give him a quarter, it should be fine. All right, skip that for a moment. Um, Go, go down to Pasukud. Pasukud Vav, Vashem, Galat Ozen Shmuel Yom Echad Lifnei Bo Shaul The day before, God had informed Shmuel and Navi of the following: Ka'et Machar Eshlach Elecha Ishme Eretz Binyamin. Nagid, by the way, is a leader. It's a term used for leader, but it's also a term used for a shepherd. You will appoint him as my flock shepherd for my flock. I see my people, I hear their affliction. Shmuel God says to him, This is the man who I told you will lead my people. Comes to Shmuel, Shmuel says to him, Don't worry about the donkeys. They're found, they're back home, your father's got them. You, on the other hand, are here for a bigger reason. 
you have reached Har Elokim, you have reached the Navi, you have reached the uh, the appointment as the next king of Israel. Now, that by itself is only part of the story, because now starts the real work, which is what's the connection between Shaul and Moshe? And there we could spend half a semester going through the parallels. And there are many parallels. There are textual parallels. I heard their cry. Uh, when God, he says to him, I will send you somebody. I saw my people. I heard their affliction. Shemuel, Shaul's initial response to the appointment when he says, who am I that I should be the leader of Israel? Ben Yisrael, I'm a nothing, I'm a nobody, I'm just the, the smallest tribes of Israel. Like Moshe said, the humility of Shaul comes through at every stage of the beginning of his story. And it's the same humility, which is the characteristic of Moshe, demonstrated by that story of the flock. But... Whereas Moshe's humility is a source of strength, so that when he needs to, he can turn to Paro and he can stand up to Paro, or he can stand up to Korach, or he can stand up to the Meraglim or to whoever else is challenging God. Shmuel's humility ultimately leads, Shaul's humility ultimately leads to his own downfall. And I gave you on the source page a chart of a bunch of comparisons, including the need for otot and signs to prove the to the um, the authenticity of the message uh, and the parallels to Moshe. I'm going to skip all of that the lack of time. We have four minutes left, so I'm going to jump to the last couple of examples. There's a bunch more examples on the page, but you can take them and look at them uh, at your leisure. Uh, I just, in the three minutes left for us, and I have a clock here, so I'm watching the time. The three minutes left to us, I want to share with you just kind of framework of a couple of additional examples. And as they say, there's much more here for, uh, for you to explore. I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, uh, I mentioned Pinchas. Pinchas is a fascinating personality because Pinchas is a personality that looms large in Sefer Yoshua and looms large in Sefer Shoftim. He's mentioned particularly in the end of Sefer Shoftim in a story which, if you haven't read, we're not going to read it today, uh, certainly not before lunch. Story Pelegish Begiva. It's really quite a, a story. Can't, it's hard to read it before lunch, and it's even harder to read after lunch. But in that story, there are. Pinchas is the Kohen Gadol, and he's mentioned explicitly. It's the fact that Pinchas is there that leads Chazal to suggest that even though the story appears at the end of Sefer Shoftim, it's a much earlier story from an earlier time. Where's the Medrash? The Medrash is not about Pelagish Begiva. The Medrash is about a story, the story of Yiftach. And we know the tragedy of Yiftach. It's a complex story. And Yiftach, when a moment of, as, as a leader of the people, the people had appointed him and had promised him, hear that word, promised him that he, he would be uh, their leader after the political leader after the victory, Pinchas leads them in great victory against um, Ammon and Moab, and at the height of this victory or this battle, he takes an oath. Uh, somewhat of an absurd oath, and the oath is the first, the first, doesn't say person, the first to emerge from my house to greet me will be offered to God. Whatever that oath means, complex story. Out walks his daughter, he virtually tears Kriya, and sees that she is going to be um, that one who came out to greet him. What did Chazal do? Chazal blamed Yif Pinchas. Chazal blamed Pinchas. Now, Pinchas, for him to be there, it's a Medrash in source uh, 30, where Medrash says, Lo Pinchas, What about Pinchas? Wasn't he there to annul the oath? Pinchas said, I'm the leader, let, let, I'm the Kohen Gadol, let Yiftach come to me. Yiftach said, I'm the leader, let Pinchas come to me. The two of them are sitting there in their own little echelons, and 
I got another 60 seconds. I'm okay. Uh, in the upper echelons, and neither comes to each other. Where's Pinchas in the story? The answer is he's not. What is in the story is the absurdity of the oath that ultimately leads to the undoing of Yiftach and his daughter. The absurdity of the oath is what I think Chazal are pointing to in the story of Pelegish Begiva, because Pelegish Begiva is a terrible story of two civil wars, one against Binyamin and one against the innocent people of Yavesh Gilad, because the people had taken an oath not to, that, that anybody who doesn't come to fight against Binyamin would be put to death. And when they want to rehabilitate Binyamin, they go and they destroy the city of Yavesh Gilad because they didn't fight in the battle. If you haven't followed all of that, that's okay. Who is the Kohen Gadol then? Pinchas. When they fought against Binyamin, the first two out of the three battles against Binyamin, Israel lost. They asked Pinchas to engage in the Urim Vatumim to check the status of the Urim Vatumim, and the Urim Vatumim says, go to battle, and they lose. And Pinchas is blamed for the failure of the Urim Vatumim. What Pinchas is really blamed for is the oaths that undid the story, that undid the story of Yavesh Gilad, under the story of Binyamin, and Pinchas is the Kohen Gadol. I would go one step further and tell you that Pinchas, I believe, led the battle against Yemesh Gilad, but that's a subject of a different shear. And here we have to come to an end because our time is up. But essentially what we've looked at is several examples. There are two more here, Achashverosh and the story of Melech Paras. There are numerous examples of stories in Tanakh that are in one place, Chazal moved them to another to play a sophisticated game of connect the dots, connect the themes, connect the texts, to essentially begin the process of analyzing all of the books of Tanakh as one in a methodology of Tanakh of relating to stories that are borrowed from one place onto another. And in the end, the message is Midrashim don't have to be taken literally, but they always need to be taken seriously. Have a good day.